0: Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It certainly is good to be back on the air, and hard to believe uh, when I was on the air last, we were uh, wrapping up uh, 2023, and now we are into the year 2024. You know, sometimes I think to myself, um, when when it comes to the 21st century, uh, the year like 2000, such and such, to me, that just seems like um, a foreign uh, concept. I remember years ago when I was a youngster and hearing about the year 2000 and what would um, unfold or unravel, I thought even the year 2000 itself was um, was just very foreign. Of course, I do remember when uh, 1999 was coming to an end and many in the government were uh, afraid that the uh, Y2K uh, incident would occur to where it would revert back to 1900 instead of the year 2000, and, and nothing um, happened with that. But uh, but it, nonetheless, it is hard to believe that we are into this uh, year of uh, 2024. Um, I certainly hope for all of you that the uh, new year has started off well and uh, will continue uh, in that uh, right direction. Uh, for the... I will say this uh the last time I was on the air um we seem to have have had a lot of uh, information uh to discuss um like we always do. I think it's fair to say uh, for those of you uh American revolutionary war buffs out there uh you're always uh learning something new that uh perhaps you didn't know before and and that's what makes um anything about history um well worth uh the time in terms of learning about even if it is something that's um that can be uh, sensitive. Um, I mean, it is important that, you know, we learn as much as there is possible uh, regardless of the event and when it uh, happened. So I'm sure um, going forward in this uh, new year uh, with regards to the uh, current uh, podcast uh, topic series that we're discussing, uh, where do we go from um, this point? Well, Going forward in the uh, series that we're doing, uh, being Nathan Hale, The Life and Death of America's First Spy by M. William Phelps, in this uh, uh, podcast segment episode, we're going to learn a great deal about um, some highs and a lot of lows. You know, as 1775 is coming to an end, and 1776 is coming to... um, is on its way we're gonna uh be in for some uh, surprises in terms of um say morale within the army um I, I will say that um morale morale onto itself was a uh, constant uh, worry of washington's of general washington's uh, i should say morale was one of those things that um had its ups. And then it had its lows, you know, or I should say its highs and then its lows. For every victory there, w- there was, say, on the battlefield, yes, morale was high. But for every setback, it goes back to a low, not just a low, but a deep low. So in other words, it's hard to keep things in the middle right now. Washington is probably dealing with a lot of extremes, you know. And matter of fact, uh, we're going to talk about a lot of those extremes in this uh, episode. So let's uh, get the show on the road. And here we go with our first uh, leadoff question for uh, Nathan Hale, the the life and death of America's first spy as we are are now into the year 2024. So here we go. Come 1775, what course of action had General Washington taken regarding the well-being for his troops? Given that the weather outside was uh, switching from fall to winter, Washington urgently requested congressional delegates down south in Philadelphia to provide better means of comfort. Well, when I think of better means of comfort, I think of um, materials or uh, provisions that would keep keep, uh, soldiers warm, given that winter is just around the corner. Uh, think about it, folks, uh, for all these soldiers, they are, you know, they're going to be uh, lodging in tents. But at the same time, um, even lodging inside a tent at a time of winter doesn't automatically guarantee you that you're going to be completely warm. You, if you have a blanket, that's great, but it may not be enough to keep you warm, considering uh, just how cold it can be in a place like uh, Massachusetts uh, during the time of uh, winter. So in terms of providing better means of comfort, how about pertaining to, yes, blankets and warmer clothing? You know, yes, uh, just because, you know, in today's time we might wear a pair of jeans outside when it's cold, it might not automatically mean that um, that we're warm. You know, if, if if it's, say, 20 degrees outside and you don't and you're not wearing any long johns, then yeah, you're going to definitely feel the um, ramifications behind just how cold it is outside. So Washington is urgently requesting Congress left and right to provide whatever available better means of comfort there is in the terms of uh, blankets, as well as um, any kind of clothing that would be warmer uh, for the soldiers to wear compared to what they already have. Washington also went as far as distributing groups of men out into forested areas with one particular mission. Yes, we might think um, that perhaps the men need to go out and hunt for food. That might be one possibility, but if you really want to know what the true mission of why washington had gone as far as distributing groups of men out into forested areas it was to find hay and firewood okay well you know when i think of hay yes i think of uh, something that you know animals um like horses and um like horses for example will feed on but um hay is essential here because um you know we have to put uh, put firewood on hay uh, intense in terms of um, starting a fire, and not just you know starting a fire, but as a means of keeping the masses warm. So, if you could find find hay and firewood, not only are you at a good advantage in general, but it's also seen as a measure or means of how to go about modifying the extremity of New England winters. So, Washington, even though he may not, he's a Virginian. Washington knows from the locals by now just how intense New England winters are. You know, sometimes we have this assumption that, well, the continental troop forces were located in such and such position, and the British troops were located far away in another position to where uh, neither side could inflict daily harm on one another. Well, yes, it is always easy to assume that the soldiers on both sides were probably about 20 miles away at best. I will admit, folks, that um, that Continental Troop Forces were not located too, too far away from enemy uh, position, or I should say location. As matter of fact, British forces weren't so far away to where Nathan Hale himself became very concerned that British uh, troop forces were launched, he was convinced, it didn't happen, but he was very concerned that British forces were in fact in the works of launching a surprise attack. For one, given that their numbers were very strong, and two, their dwellings, in terms of where they are uh, positioned at, or located at, those dwellings are well fortified. So in other words, they have for, the enemy has fortified themselves so well to that, so well to where if, say, the Continental um, forces wanted to um, try to conduct some, some kind of uh, surprise attack, uh, it would get repelled very quickly. Some soldiers are so unsure of where things stood at the present moment, unfortunately, they ended up leaving without any advance notice. Can you imagine all of a sudden, witnessing in front of you, soldiers leaving without any advance notice? I wonder why some of these soldiers left. Could it be because morale was down? Could it be because they didn't want to re-enlist anymore? Could it be that they needed to get home to their families and not only just tend to their families, but tend to their farms, given that um, they have to think about the well-being of the livestock, especially now that winter is um, in uh, full gear? Well, I'm not sure exactly how many soldiers um, deserted, or I wouldn't say deserted, how many soldiers, um, you know, just... uh, picked up and um, left without any advance notice. But many Continental Army officers, including General Washington himself, were now beginning to wonder all the more if, in fact, an American army would still be intact come January 1st of 1776. Yeah, these are um, definitely some trying times. I mean, you know when i think of that phrase uh, these are times that try men's souls i think of thomas paine's uh, famous pamphlet common sense which would be um distributed just before the um before the miracle at trenton in late 1776 but yes even in 1775 just 8 months after the first shots were fired or i should say as ralph waldo emerson said shots heard round the world as 1775 is coming to an end, Washington and his uh, officers in the inner circle now are beginning to wonder, will we still have an, Amer- an American army intact come the very beginning of 1776? So now we have to wonder, how can General Washington, along with the officers below him in the inner circle, modify the current situation? <coughs> well, I have that question for you. How did General Washington try to go about modifying the current situation pertaining to reenlistment? Well, for starters, he issued a note to his officers which in enli- which entailed strict orders to urge as many men possible to reenlist. You know, yes, it's yes, you could say all all you want left and right. Oh, I really would like for you to reenlist. But Washington has Washington knows that um, as 1775 is coming to an end and 1776 is just around the corner, he's going to have to be very specific about reenlistment. so in other words, the orders per the note that he has sent to his officers specifically states that um, for those men whom are whom are willing to reenlist they uh, are to do so from starting from December sixth of seventeen seventy five to january first seventeen seventy six all right, so that's a good starting point there, but now you've got to take it up another level past one o one secondly, Washington spoke directly with officers whom did in fact see troops leave abruptly without any notice Washington goes as far as wanting to know their names and their rank along with answers behind why they left. So in other words, if John Smith leaves, Washington wants to know does in fact John Smith have a rank? Why is John Smith leaving? Washington also went as far as getting the word out to leaders everywhere in the New England colonies Besides Massachusetts being Connecticut, Rhode Island, New Hampshire, you know, um, Washington um, is trying to. He's getting word out to leaders everywhere in the New England colonies, for a primary reason that British sympathy is not to be tolerated. In other words, yes, there are those still out there whom want reconciliation. But at the same time, we've got a conflict going on and there's no turning back. If we're already um, at war with England, the mother country that is, then why should we decide now to put down our arms and ask for a a truce to where all fighting hostilities come to an end and then all of a sudden we just revert back to being uh, subjects to the crown, subjects whom in the eyes of Washington and, you know, many others whom are for uh, independence from England. It's like, you know, why are we even here in Philadelphia? Um, Why are we even here in Philadelphia, or why are we even debating what we've been debating for some time in the midst of opposition? So there... You know, Washington knows that yes, there might be a lot of unification in New England, in the New England colonies, behind independence. But at the same time, Washington knows that there is um, that there are still pockets of loyalists in Rhode Island, New Hampshire, Connecticut, Massachusetts, um, and he'll know as time goes along, as the war moves on elsewhere, that there will be pockets of loyalists. But at the same time. Anybody who still maintains uh, sympathies to the crown at this point not only is a, a hazard to themselves but could be hazards to others. Did Nathan's 3rd Company, or 7th Connecticut Regiment, come upon a surprise British attack in late 1775? Believe it or not, Nathan's 3rd uh, Company, 7th Connecticut Regiment, did in fact um, come upon a surprise British attack and it happened within a 24-hour time period. Nathan's regiment saw one man killed, only for another six to seven men get wounded. The surprise attack resulted in a private soldier deserting after seeing the horrors around him. I don't know what this soldier was thinking. Of course, one could say, well, you know, you can't legislate stupidity. But regardless of whose side you're on it is fair to say that there is one thing in common, that there are horrors all over, all around you in a time of war. In other words, yes, you could see people whom you have known for some time lose their lives in front of you, but you're going to see the same kind of horrors on the other end where you, along with others, have fired upon the enemy only to take them out and wondering if, even if they survive, you know, their lives won't be the same. But if they die, then you have, um, you know, committed the same act as the opposition has. So I'm not sure why um, this private soldier deserted. It just makes no sense. Were overall numbers behind Continental Army disbanding very high prior to 1775 ending? It turns out, folks, uh, the answer is yes. General Washington saw an assortment of acts take place from refusal, or I should say from from refusing to obey officers above. In other words, I hate to say this, folks, you know, the Continental Army wasn't always as perfect as, say, what the textbooks may have told us 25, 30 years ago. There were uh, there were soldiers, a handful of them, who uh, did refuse to obey officers from above, and it just wasn't in Massachusetts. Uh, it happened at Valley Forge. It's um, it's happened. It happened in the southern colonies when the uh, when eventually the war would um, shift uh, southward. Um, but that wouldn't be till 1778. But the bottom line is the Continental Army was not always 100% perfect, and that perhaps is okay. But when it came to uh, soldiers obeying uh, commands from officers above, that was not always um, 100% intact. Uh, soldiers, believe it or not, <laughs> engaged in uh, acts of theft. <coughs> well, I think it's fair to say that there's always those uh, from within who um, simply do not how do not know how to uh, conduct themselves. Then you have desertion, you know, people leaving to go over and fight on the side of the British, and then treason. I think it's fair to say that desertion and treason probably both tie in tie in together, because if you are going to uh, desert and go join the enemy, being the British, you might as well be uh, charged with treason, meaning that you are no longer uh, loyal uh, to the cause for independence, but perhaps you're no longer loyal to the new United States. But of course, um, England still refuses to um, accept the fact that um, that her um, subjects have not only um, rebelled, but are taking up arms against uh, the Crown and Parliament uh, altogether. So, yes, Washington is seeing um, acts from refusing to obey officers above to theft, desertion, and treason uh, intensify at a very uh, high level. So now, once again, we're led to wonder, or we're led to find out, um, how does Washington go about modifying this problem? It seems like ever since he arrived into Massachusetts in early July of 1775, he has had to make constant modifications. But in order for an army to function, constant modifications have to take place. What may work today probably will not work, um, say, maybe a week from now. That just goes to show you how much uh, things can change, not just for over a short period of time, but but for uh, long-term purposes as well. One instance saw General Washington administer 10 lashes on a soldier's bare back. I'm not sure what the uh, incident pertained to. I mean, for all we know, it could have pertained to this soldier's uh, refusal to obey officers, uh, to obey commands from officers above. It could have been theft. I'm thinking it was one of those two things, but the bottom line is that this this particular soldier got 10 lashes on his bare back. Uh, it's bad enough you get one or two on your bare back, but I can't imagine getting ten. But at the same time, I would suspect that a handful of other soldiers were present to witness this as a means of deterrence. In other words, you know, by say twenty five of you all watching this happen, at least the best message I can give to you to you twenty five soldiers here is not to make the same mistake. This should be a warning. This should be a sign of deterrence so that, uh, none, so that none of you all go down the same path as, uh, say, John Smith did. So, yes, uh, Washington um, also instructed officers to oversee that groups of militiamen marching towards Cambridge, which was the main headquarters for the Continental Army, that these militiamen get paid a fixed regular sum, or what we would think of in today's time as a stipend, for transporting basic necessities like blankets and coats. Okay, so for the everyday average soldiers, they need in order for them to try to feel as though they are part of this greater cause, Washington's willing to give them more tasks. I don't see anything wrong with that. October into early November 1775 saw no major fighting in and around Boston despite a couple of minor skirmishes. Nathan left anxious, he's left anxious, Nathan Hale, that is, and he's left so anxious because, you know, for someone like Nathan Hale, he needs to be doing something all the time, and for Nathan Hale, what is he craving? Up-close action, or I should say combat but we have to be reminded that there are uh breaks and fighting, but that doesn't mean you just sit back and twirl your thumb and do nothing. You've still got to be on the prowl in other words, you've still got to be vigilant. you still have to um know um for example your surroundings and um go out on um go out on missions, even if it means scouting where the enemy is at to uh prevent the enemy from perhaps doing something that would um offset things so bad to where um, not only do a couple of your um, fellow comrades get killed, but also um, your assignments get blown. So uh, the bottom line is that, uh, yes, Nathan Hale is uh, craving up-close action or combat, but at the same time, just because there's a lull lull or a break in the fighting, it doesn't mean that uh, you can just sit back and rest on your laurels and assume that, well, uh, we can um, wait this out until spring, and then everything will uh, be back to normal in terms of, uh, say, normal uh, fighting um, normal uh, fighting, and all that, because uh, for the uh, European um, principles uh, in terms of how warfare was conducted, uh, for the Europeans, um, you took a break in the winter and did not resume fighting until um, spring. But we'll see if that um, eventually... Um, holds true um, as 1775 comes to an end. So um, for Nathan Hale, you know, you have to wonder, okay, what could he do to relieve the boredom? I mean, yes, he could certainly read the Bible. Yes, he could still comfort those soldiers under his uh, watch, whom are lonely as well. And, you know, he, he could comfort them and do all that left and right. But Nathan uh, Nathan's going to do something here, folks, that is actually going to really, really uh, help him get a better grasp on what lies ahead. Nathan's superior officers encouraged him in November of 1775 to study a particular manual of arms. It was a camp etiquette book. It was created by an order of his majesty in 1764, and that's in quotations, folks. You know, 1764, 11 years earlier, you know, we're in the uh, post-seven years um, war era, or I should say French and Indian War era, and of course, you know, even in 1764, we still, you know, have this belief that, you know, we'll still be under, not only are we still going to be under the crown's uh, watch, but at the same time, the crown is still going to be looking after us, but, um, A lot of things changed after the Seven Years' War ended that obviously were not for the better, but um, the rules of um, fighting in this uh, book, um, His Majesty in 1764, that uh, pertained to uh, Camp Etiquette book, I uh, notated some of this, and, uh, and it's in quotations. So the rules of fighting entailed the following, in quotes, to stand straight and firm upon legs head turned to the right heels close toes a little turned out seize the firelock with your right with your right and with your right hand pardon me the manual of arms was intended to help ensure that every soldier knew their job when marching to making, or I should say, to taking aim and getting ready to take uh, fire. So, in other words, this is all about how everyone is supposed to do their job. Yes, it's one thing to march, but how do you go about presenting arms when your instructor tells you to do so? How do you go about making ready to take aim? And fire. All um, within, um, all within um, enemy. All within a column. So, in other words, you know, as a as a soldier, you've got to be. Uh, all of you have to be lined up in uh, columns, ready to take aim. You know, if you have ten men lined up next to one another, your job, your goal is to. Um, is for everyone to fire at once to get a volley, and with the hopes that on the other end you are able to knock down. If there are ten other men on the other end, your your goal is to hope is in the hopes that you could maybe knock down half of those men. Were there um, any issues behind uh, sentrymen, or I should say guardsmen, getting intoxicated to sleeping on the job? you know i always thought as i said earlier that uh, that the that the continental army was well structured um even in in its uh, infancy but i've had to constantly remind myself that that's not always the case i mean this was a a big uh trial and error test for washington you know one daily challenge after another and and the same for the officers within the inner circle perhaps this was a good thing because you know there again you can't rest on your laurels and assume that okay if if these people know how to do their jobs right then we shouldn't then we don't need to tell them how to do anything else well you know things change all the time and yes you may have four out of five guardsmen doing their job while they're on the while they're on the job but you always have that one who does things that are very unbecoming such as getting intoxicated to sleeping on the job so As much as I hate to say it, folks, uh, there were issues behind sentrymen, or I should say guardsmen, getting intoxicated to sleeping on the job. So General Washington instructed his brigade commanders to address not only to their troops, but to any guardsmen under their brigade that what was to be expected of them at all times within camp settings. In other words, everybody needs to set a good example. Yes, just because you're an officer commanding Uh, soldiers below you. The rules just don't apply to you as the officer alone. Um, As the common soldier, you have to be setting examples too, because if you want to earn a promotion, you've got to start somewhere, but you do have to set an example. And even for the guardsmen or sentrymen whom are on the lookout, they need to set examples too, because think about it, if there are a hundred men in a uh, camp and you're the guardsman, you better make sure that you are alert. You better make sure that you know what's going on around you in terms of your settings, but you better make sure that, um, that you're not endangering the lives of, of all the other men in the campground. Because if you are, not only could you be replaced, but I don't know if you would get replaced, you might get executed for, um, for failing to, um, to not only adhere to the um, rules, but f- failure to, um, to protect, your, uh, to protect um, those whom you're supposed to be protecting. A good number of Continental soldiers. This is another um, reminder of what Washington is dealing with and his officers uh, below him. A good number of Continental soldiers, folks, were illiterate they did not know how to read nor write so it's one thing to have uh, some soldiers who might be creating mischief now all of a sudden you've got some soldiers you may have soldiers who are illiterate who don't know how to read nor write so now you have to think to yourself how could john smith how can john smith go about writing his name if john smith can't read the most basic of stuff what use will John Smith have in the army? Yes, John Smith has answered the call of duty, but if John Smith can't read nor write, is this going to pose as a liability? So officers of every uh, sentryman, a.k.a. guardsmen, were required uh, by Washington to have their troops read verbally, read out the following, and this is in quotes, folks, who comes there In other words, Army leaders must be vigilant on a regular basis both day and night in anticipating something unexpected such as a surprise attack or confrontation. Or how about persons posing as locals, you know, say uh, Sally and Tom Jones, or I should say Tom Jones's coming into the camp and saying, oh, I'm a, a local outside of uh, Boston, and I'd like to uh, be able to bring the troops uh, bread and some other provisions that might help them uh, during the winter. All of that you know seems very nice, but is Tom Jones really who he is? In other words, could Tom Jones be using a fictitious name? In other words, is Tom Jones' real name Tom Jones? We don't know, and and also too, is Tom Jones a is Tom Jones really a patriot? Could he be a loyalist? Inside, um, could he not only just be a loyalist, but could he be um, a British um, soldier or a British spy trying to infiltrate the uh, Continental Army for information? Because you know after. You know, we do need to be reminded that both uh, continental and British uh, troop forces, in terms of where they're garrisoned and stationed, they're not very far apart from each other. So, it is very easy for both sides to obtain, um, perhaps, to obtain obte, obtain intelligence about one another, um, knowing just how uh, close uh, both sides are in proximity to one another. So, yes, um, you've got uh, local the locals could, um, be the exact opposite being spies. Uh, how did Washington go about trying to persuade his troops to stay until the end of December, 1775? Well, you know, I know, uh, early on we talked about how he, um, how he asked them to reenlist for the period from December 6th of 1775 to January 1st of 1776. But Washington knows that, um, you know, that's, that was just a temporary fix. Now he's got to find something that's more long-term. But how did Washington go about trying to persuade his uh, troops to stay until the very end of S- December 1775? He promised that all soldiers whom re-enlisted got granted a furlough, and for those of you who aren't sure what a furlough is, that's a temporary leave of absence. So he uh, promised that all soldiers whom re-enlisted would get granted a temporary leave of absence at some particular point during the winter season. But at the same time, these furloughs, not everybody can get a furlough at once. You know, you might be able to give maybe five or six furloughs, five or six soldiers a furlough in their um, regiment, say if you've got 60 soldiers, but the bottom line is you can't give half of those soldiers a furlough because if you do uh how who's to say that what's left of the army that's not on furlough can function you need to have enough people left over to ensure that the regiment will function uh because that is um not only a um a primary essential but for washington he is very determined behind his primary objective in maintaining an army that could match up long term with british forces and that's what he, he needs. He needs an army that can go head to toe with the mightiest um, military power in the world. And Washington knows this because the fight for independence is not going to be achieved overnight or short term. In other words, you know, it, yes, it's one thing to want to be separated from England, but you're going to have to fight for it. That means you're going to have to fight for it on the battlefield. And that's what's already been happening since April of 1775. Early December of 1775 saw wintry conditions further deteriorate, folks, uh, to where troops had no access to essentials. You know, so often in today's time, depending on where we live in the world, it is easy to uh, take a lot of things uh, for granted. But we have to be reminded that in 1775, in a time of war, Accessibility to essential provisions is a very difficult um, challenge. So essentials that come to my mind are flour, vegetables, meat, as well as means of keeping warm. So it's, yes, means of uh, keeping warm proved to be very difficult. So what did the soldiers do? Well, many of the soldiers had no other choice but to tear down and burn houses. Yes, it's probably fair to say that a lot of the houses that they um, tore down and burned were perhaps vacant, but you almost have to wonder, did soldiers uh, confront um, families with regards uh, for accessibility, um, for stuff that was uh, for warmth purposes? It's very possible. But what I do know, and based upon what I've read, is that many houses that were uh, vacated, they could have been vacated by, uh, say, Tory families whom left to go on to, uh, say, Halifax, Nova Scotia, or um, St. John's, uh, New Brunswick, or into Canada or England, or, or I should say England. Yeah, it's f- probably fair to say that they all vacated their homes and, and that uh, these uh, troops, continental troops, would have... Uh, Would have, um, we call it, disassembled their homes uh, in terms of tearing them down and burning the houses where wood got placed into fires for uh, warmth purposes. So think about it, folks. No modern day um, water heater units. You know, uh, your survival depends upon a lot of things, but it also uh, depends upon having to constantly reinvent yourself, uh, not just short-term but long-term. Captain Hale's regiment was located near uh, the British line to where they could hear the enemy conducting fortification setup procedures. For Nathan Hale, you know, you have to wonder, you know, for Nathan Hale, you have to wonder, my gosh, is this is are we seeing the end right here? You know, at any time now the enemy could just um, fire upon us, and who's to say that any of us might even survive? You really just you really don't know. Uh, did General Washington receive any troop reinforcements before December seventy before December seventeen seventy five ended? He did, come to se- Come December 11th, he received around 2,000 troops. You know, 2,000 seems high, but it was far below what Congress originally promised, being somewhere over 10,000. The new recruits, as much as Washington uh, appreciated the fact that he was able to get what he was able to, um, he was appreciative of what he was able to get. It may not have been the desired number he was wanting but you know 2000 is better than none but the new recruits unfortunately don't have much to offer and many of them lack the most um i think you know essentials can mean just about anything but if you're a, a new recruit and you're making your way into Massachusetts if there's one thing that you could be lacking and that is firearms Think about it, folks. The Continental Army, uh, the headquarters at Cambridge, does not have uh, magazine houses left and right for storing uh, pistols or um, muskets or rifles. You know, if you come into the uh, Continental Army, if you make your way into Massachusetts and you have a musket or a rifle or a pistol, that's great. If you own one of them, that's great. You know, most people, though, own uh, muskets, just because they are easier to obtain than, say, a rifle, but whatever you have in terms of um, in terms of weaponry, it is better than nothing. But at the same time, you have to be reminded of the fact that um, that there weren't um, magazine houses uh, where, in other words, there weren't um, how you call it, like the equivalent of like Costco facilities that could um, uh, store. Um, Provisions that would have been uh, used for protection purposes, as well as provisions that would have provided, um, what do you call it, for, um, for food in terms of long term. Now, unfortunately, we just don't have that kind of a sophisticated technology or, uh, or um, manpower uh, at that time. Uh, what did uh, February, as well as March and April of 1776, what did those three months have in common? Those three months saw scores of new militiamen come into Boston from multiple points. Well, that's definitely a good sign there that uh, scores of new militiamen are coming into Boston from multiple points. As the siege of Boston was nearing its end, uh, what difficulties uh, did British uh, forces face? Okay, well, what do you all think um, British forces were uh, facing in terms of difficulties as the siege of Boston was nearing its end? Well, uh, given that the British weren't able to adequately engage in proper logistical tasks, and when I, when I think of proper logistical tasks, I think of like the basic means of resupplying and uh, reinforcement. Any means of resupplying, including reinforcement, was severely uh, restricted. How so? Well, it, you know it's one thing to be located right near water, but if there's one thing that Brit- British forces don't have the advantage of, or in my opinion, maybe they didn't really make enough of an effort to, um, to do more of, especially after shots were fired around the world, that was to uh, go further um, inland, say 25, 50 miles outside of Boston, If you had done that, you might have been able to have um, not only um, resupplied uh, better but reinforced a little bit better. If not 100%, maybe 50%. But the bottom line is, is that if you are heavily dependent upon waterway only, then your means of getting around from points A to B and past point B are very, very restricted. March 17th, 1776, of course, we all think of March 17th, we think of St. Patrick's Day, but um, in March, March of uh, 1776, there were a lot of things happening in Boston. But on the 17th of that year, it was the day which the official siege of Boston came to an end. British ships began moving out around 4 a.m., and by 9 a.m., the last of their ships departed. After uh, March seventeenth, seventeen 1776, I do know that that day in Boston is referred to as Evacuation Day. Well, the fleet um, that left Boston comprised of 120 ships. 120 ships, folks. I can't imagine uh, seeing all those ships leaving Boston with just over 11,000 people on board. Out of the 11,000 people, there were 9,906 British troops, 667 women, and 553 children. Most Massachusetts loyalists left Boston on March 17, 1776, and went onward to England in search of rebuilding their lives. Many, however, went to Canada, most notably St. John's, uh, New Brunswick, and Halifax, Nova Scotia. The aftermath to the siege of Boston saw the town become um, a key station for fitting ships of war, including privateering, or I should say privateer vessels. Uh, Privateer vessels um, are non-government ships designed with the purpose of attacking um, enemy warships. However, even if it's a non-government ship, a privateering vessel would still require its owner to get a letter of marquee from the government. In other words, meaning that we have authorized John Smith the right to um, use his uh, flotilla of vessels to go out into the waters and seize enemy vessels, but he will also be required to split his earnings with his crew, and if anything is captured on enemy ships say like cannons and anything else that would be deemed essential for what would become the continental navy or even for the army itself then the government is allowed to have access to it so so yes boston you know didn't remain uh, dormant after uh, the siege had ended it just saw itself become even more relevant in other ways now uh, we're going to move on here um, to uh, another uh, aspect, or I should say, phase of the war. You know, everybody gets this assumption that when the British left Boston, many of the soldiers obviously did go on to, back to went on to Halifax, Nova Scotia. And then there were uh, soldiers that left Ireland, departed from Ireland, and came to Halifax, Nova Scotia as a means of... Uh, as a means for uh, getting ready for the next task that lied ahead, or for some of them who had not already seen action in Boston, this would be their first taste of war against uh, rebel forces. But now we're going to learn about a Continental Army officer whom I have uh, learned about and, uh, read and have uh, known about for some time. He is a very uh, interesting character, to say the least, and... Um, His name is the following. Whom was Charles Lee? He was one of Washington's top three officers and advisors whom held the rank of Major General. Washington instructed Major General Charles Lee to set out for New York come the beginning of January 1776 with with an objective behind setting up defenses in and around New York City. Now, on January the 5th of 1776, gosh, hard to believe tomorrow is January 5th, 2024. My gosh. So, January 5th, 1776, and January 5th, 2024, that's uh, 248 years ago, folks, a 248 year difference. You know, people think America is old based upon the fact that she's 247, 247 and a half years old. She's not that old. Uh, we're still a young country, but yet the number itself, you know, tells a different story. But in my opinion, we're still a pretty young country despite having been um, recognized, or despite our declaring our independence officially on July 4th of uh, 1776. So on January 5th of 1776, Charles Lee wrote to Washington emphasizing that the city was to be fortified. However, Charles Lee in his letter did not personally believe that that the primary objective in terms of uh, fortifying the city 100% could get totally achieved. Charles Lee is not trying to sell out his country, is he, folks? No, he's not. The reason why he is saying this to Washington is because the city itself has a strong loyalist population. Yes, there were loyalists in Boston, but... There is a huge uh, discrepancy in terms of uh, differences in terms of uh, overall population of loyalists in New York versus Boston. April 4th of 1776 saw Washington's forces in Massachusetts depart southward for Manhattan where they would begin preparing to engage the British under General William Howe as the New York and New Jersey campaigns soon followed. For General Howe, if his, for- if his forces got to New York first, it meant a greater likelihood of cutting off New England from American troop forces in the South. And when I say troop forces in the South, at this point it could be uh, middle colonies like Pennsylvania, uh, Maryland, New Jersey, Delaware, and anyone really even from New York. At this time, folks, New York is considered a, mil- a middle colony but, he, but for General Howe, he is trying to uh, cut off New England from American troop forces in the south, as well as to the west via St. Lawrence River, and as well as New York's uh, north and east rivers, which uh, ultimately, in the um, mindset of General William Howe, it could prevent further buildup of uh, rebel forces short and long term. It might be fair to say, and I'll probably say this probably uh, often in other uh, episodes down the road, but maybe General William Howe sees New York as the ultimate knockout punch to quash the existing rebellion once and for all, and and with the intentions like Parliament and what what the Crown want is they need this rebellion to come to an end to get... uh, the subjects being the ungrateful subjects in the minds of George III to get them back under control and show them who's in control and who's not. Given the war movement for independence now moves south to New York, what topic or theme, I should say, became embedded into congressional records? Intelligence. Intelligence. Given without it, an army onto itself would constantly be on the defensive, meaning it would be constantly on the run. Well, intelligence did pay dividends in Boston, but in order for anything to um, be successful in New York, intelligence is going to have to be just as vital but the problem is is that if you given that there's such a strong loyalist population in New York the means of acquiring intelligence is going to become even more difficult but also landscape too i mean the landscape that there, that Boston had yes Boston is uh by sea New York City is too but the landscape itself could tell a whole different story you know landscapes um can often dictate whether or not obtaining intelligence is going to be as going to be smooth. Um, The Second Continental Congress renamed the Committee of Correspondence to the to the Committee of Secret Correspondence. So it uh, basically got a um, what we might think of in today's time as an extreme makeover. The new committee uh, was designed to help oversee that agents get tasked to perform undercover operations Devise codes for special missions, establishing courier systems where information could be swapped. This perhaps would, could be seen as an early version of a modern-day CIA, Central Intelligence Agency. Matter of fact, the CIA was uh, wasn't created until 1947. If that tells you, you know just how young the CIA itself still is after. Um, after, say, um, three, after 75 years. This new committee also, folks, had the power to decide what to do with those whom deserted, a.k.a. traitors. Well, it is great to know that there is a new committee out there that can uh, do all this stuff, but at the same time, given that Congress is in Philadelphia and now the Continental Army is to the north in New York, you know, we don't have telephones, we don't have instant um, text alerts or emails that could say, hey, this is what the uh, committee is recommending that you do, General Washington. Washington can't um, respond back immediately and say, hey, um, this is what I have, That this is what needs to be done. On the other hand, having a courier system will help modify um, things, uh, given that there is a, uh, more than likely, there would have to be a constant route from north to north to south, you know, we can't place all the uh, power in the hands of one or two couriers. There has to be a, a big network um, system of couriers, just like there were in Boston that, uh, or in Massachusetts that led up to um, Paul Revere's um, last-minute uh, famous ride, getting that last-minute uh, push out, warning uh, the residents of Lexington and Concord that, hey, in fact, the British are coming, you know, now you all need to um now you all need to be prepared. It's kinda like saying this is your last warning, um you better adhere to it, you better heed to it. I mean, I I'm not playing around. So yes, uh the courier system, you know, we certainly hope that it will help modify things, but at the same time, uh, it is fair to say that intelligence onto itself will be changing um not just um daily but it will be uh it could be changing uh, within hours. The big question is is okay once you obtain the intelligence can it still be useful? We'll find that out um the next time I'm on the air and I will say this too that when I'm also on the air again next we're going to learn about a um a mission that um that has uh, that's one um uh, never uh, been done before but we're going to find out whether or not Nathan Hale himself is going to be a part of this, um, mission, or I should say top secret mission. Well, thank you for your time as always. And, uh, no matter where you live in the world, uh, continue to stay safe. And I also wanted to say, uh, thank you. Um, uh, just the other week I picked up a new nation and that was, um, I want to say it was a nation of uh, Kenya. It was, uh, but, uh, welcome aboard, uh, for those of you who, uh, live in Kenya, um, I'm now in, uh, six African nations, and, um, you know, I, I think that's, uh, that's, uh, very exciting, uh, because I do have to be reminded of the fact that, uh, not everyone around the world, um, can have access to, um, technology, um, sophisticated technology that many of us, yes, could take for granted, so, uh, for those of you in Kenya. Um, Glad to have you all on board. Uh, Take care. um, Again, take care um, no matter where you live, and I look forward to being back on the air next time. Stay safe.